Go ahead and be seated. Well, it's a privilege for me to be here uh, to uh, share and worship with you. Had a chance to uh, speak to your men's group and boys' groups. Boys there, too, yesterday morning. I really enjoyed that uh, privilege. So I've been here since uh, Friday evening. My wife, Cheryl, if you're sitting with Jerry and Monica there, if you just hold your hand up, Cheryl. Cheryl came in last night. There was a lot of weather, so she didn't get in as early as, she, as we'd hoped. But I'm glad to have Cheryl with me, too. And uh, this congregation is one that means a lot to me personally and to my wife. Um, just as I was growing up in the Reformed Presbyterian Church, uh, this was a congregation that way back in the 60s, God was establishing and doing some really wonderful th- things in that encouraged me to per- continue to pursue the ministry as a young man. And then, as uh, Jerry mentioned, Cheryl and I lived in Selma for eight years, and I was part of this presbytery that your congregation is a part of as well. And uh, I just got to know a lot of the people up here uh, at conferences and when we had presbytery meetings, and uh, these folks were a great support to us over the years. So I'm really thankful for what God has done over many years uh, through this uh, congregation of his people, and I pray and had more time to pray this week for you and just pray that God would continue to sustain you in a great way and use you in a mighty way in the days ahead. Let's, uh, turn, let's open our Bibles now and turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, and we'll be reading this first chapter all the way through. We'll be concentrating especially on the first 17 verses, but we'll read, we'll read the whole chapter here. Matthew chapter 1. Follow along as I read God's word. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, And Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, 
And Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. And Abiud, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azar, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Achim. And Achim, the father of Eliad. And Eliad, the father of Eliezer. Eliezer, the father of Matan. And Matan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. I encourage you to keep your Bible open to this. And let's just pray for a moment and ask God's blessing on the message. Father in heaven, we love your word, and we're so thankful for it, and we pray that uh, as we think about this passage that you've given us through uh, Matthew, this first chapter of his gospel, the first chapter of the New Testament, that you'll bless us in understanding it, uh, why it's there, and more so, Lord, or along with that, we ask that you will show us how this speaks to us in several different ways today. We pray that your Holy Spirit will be with us. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. So I think I could see a look on some of your faces as I started into this chapter. Hmm, this is an interesting passage for the guest preacher to bring to us today. And uh, what, what, a, what do you know about this? This is something, a genealogy. You know, uh, We were in uh, the uh, Sunday school class earlier and watching about a Muslim who came to Christ. It's a very interesting story and how, uh, so I'd encourage you to consider going to that class, but in the story he told, uh, or one of the stories he told about his coming to Christ at a certain point, um, he, he went to the book of Matthew and he began to read God's word for the first time as it was, instead of tr- looking at it critically, to uh, look for God to comfort him. And he said he skipped over the genealogy. So, so I thought, oh, well, that's a good introduction to my speaking about the genealogy. But I imagine he came back to that genealogy years later and uh, saw 
how valuable it is uh, in a lot of ways. And, and yet, as we read genealogies uh, today, you know, people are interested in that more and more. So a lot of people are going back and trying to find out about their ancestors. And not long ago, uh, and so many of you probably are interested in these things, uh, even if some of the words are hard to read, uh, as we, or the names as we go through it. But uh, not long ago, we got an email from uh, a friend, an acquaintance, not somebody we knew real well, but he had found out that uh, in his, uh, in his uh, past, there were a lot of Hemphills, people with the last name of Hemphill. So he was contacting uh, us to see if we knew much about our ancestors and whether there might be a tie-in. And so I didn't have a whole lot of information, but I saw his list of people, and there were a lot of Hemphills in it. And as much as I knew, I kind of went back, and I talked to my brother, who knows a little bit more about our backgrounds, and there didn't seem to be any tie-in between us and this fellow. So maybe he was kind of glad for that. I'm not sure why he'd contacted us about it. But this morning, uh, as we consider this genealogy of Jesus Christ, uh, there are two questions we want to ask. The first one is, what's the reason that Matthew has this genealogy? And we're going to look at several reasons why we, I believe the Holy Spirit had him put this right at the beginning of his book. And then secondly, we'll uh, look at what this is, mean, what's meaningful to us from this, or what is at least, or at least some of the things we could gain from studying this today. So let's start with the first question, the, re, or the reasons for the genealogy, with the question, why does Matthew begin his gospel this way? I want you to think about that with me for a few moments. Why does Matthew uh, begin this way? Well, the first, first thing we might note is that the Old Testament, uh, the book of Genesis, the first book of the Old Testament, begins this way. In the second chapter of Genesis, uh, you might remember it says, this is the book of the generations of the heavens and the earth. What a strange title. We think of generations having to do with people, but this says, here is the book of the generations of the heavens and the earth. And it talks about creation. And then, uh, as the book goes on, there's at least 10 times in the book of Genesis uh, where it's, there's a list of a genealogy, and there's a list, and it'll, it'll say, these are the generations of so-and-so, Abraham, Seth, Noah, whoever it is. And some postulate that there were written records that people kept of who their families were. And whether that was the case or not, I'm sure there were oral records that, were, that people had. I'm sure that as they sat around the campfire or at night, uh, parents would say to their children, you know, this was your grandfather, and this is your grandmother, and this is your father and mother, and so forth. And so it seems like many, it, it may be through that way that Moses, by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, had these records, not only of creation, but all that he knew about the families that had preceded the Israelites. So Matthew, in beginning the New Testament this way, of course, there's God's providence that put Matthew as the first book of the New Testament, but isn't it appropriate that this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ? The Old Testament, the Old Covenant begins that way. The New Covenant begins that way. Genealogies, another thing about genealogies is that genealogies tie together the family of God. And much of what Matthew has here is taken from genealogies in the Old Testament, such as Genesis and the book of Ruth and the book of 1 Chronicles, chapters 1 through 3. You find this information in the Old Testament. So Matthew pulled 
uh, this information from God's already written word. And a lot of times, I believe in uh, the Christian church today, people don't really understand how the Old Testament and the New Testament tie together or how connected is the family of God in the Old Covenant and the family of God in the New Covenant. We're one people. We're united. There are differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant for sure, but there are a lot of things that carry on. We are still the Israel of God, both Old and New Covenant, both Jew and Gentile. I believe that's what it's saying in Romans when it speaks about the Israel of God. And not only do genealogies show how, how the family of God is tied together, but also they link real events with real history. The Bible's not a book of made-up stories or fairy tales. The events recorded in it took place in real time and real places, and genealogies help us to remember that. What was recorded in the New Testament and what was recorded in the Old Testament are events in history. Genealogies also provide a very logical way to begin a story or to begin a biography. And in a very real sense, the, the Gospels, all the Gospels, are a, a biography. They tell the story of Jesus' life. And not long ago, I, I was reading a couple of biographies of some of our presidents. And uh, the, the, uh, while they started uh, both of these biographies with the, some stories or two from the lives of those presidents that kind of drew you into the story, uh, at some point early on in the books, they began to say, well, here's who his mother was and his father was, and here's how... This person, here's the roots of the person and so forth. This is where this person's come from. This is his background and so forth. And so it's very natural that we would begin uh, the life of Jesus by explaining where he's, where he's come from, who were the, who's in the genealogy and so forth. Um, interestingly enough, uh, while Matthew starts with the genealogy, Luke doesn't ha has a genealogy, but he doesn't put it in until chapter 3. So in many ways, he's like the modern writers I'm talking about, who tells you some about the birth and things that are going on, and then comes back and says in chapter 3, now this is where Jesus came from, at least and humanly speaking. Most of all, why does Matthew have a genealogy here? Because Matthew's great goal, or one of his great goals, is to show that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the one that Israel was hoping and longing for. And so Matthew begins with this summary statement that you see in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. He then goes on to write in this genealogy the names between those two gigantic figures, the children of Abraham down to the line of Abraham, the, the children from Abraham to David down to David, and then from David he goes down through the list of the kings, and then he goes on through those who were in Babylon or taken to Babylon up to the time of Christ. So he takes these gigantic figures of redemption history and points Jesus back to them and reminds us that he is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, and he is the fulfillment of the son of David who would sit on David's throne and rule over all things. At the same time, Matthew is also, in this first chapter at least, emphasizing Jesus' 
uh, divinity. He's, he's emphasizing his humanity, you could say, in verses 1 through 17. But then in verses 18 and so forth, he makes it very clear that while Jesus was the son of Mary, he was not really the son of Joseph. While he was the son of God. And it's very clear that that's coming out in verses 18 uh, through 25 at the end of the chapter. Before they came together, Mary was found with child. The angel speaks to Joseph, who's hesitant to take her as his wife, and says, no, this is of the Holy Spirit. And then it, Matthew notes in verse 22 that this is to fulfill the promise of Isaiah 7.14, that a virgin would bear a son, and they would call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And so the last half of the chapter is emphasizing Jesus' divinity. Uh, he's the Son of God and also the Son of Man. So these are the reasons I believe that uh, Matthew has this genealogy there at the beginning. The Old Testament begins in the same way, really. Genealogies tie together the family of God. Genealogies uh, link real events with real history. They provide a logical way to begin a biography. And most of all, Matthew's goal is to show that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Son of Man, and the Son of God. That's why it's there, and it's important. And the Muslim guy should have read it. But let's go on then to think about the second thing that we want to consider. The lessons learned from the genealogy. Are there lessons that we can learn? And there are many things that could be brought to your attention. I'm sure there's a multitude of things that the Holy Spirit could teach us from this. But I'd like to have you impress on your hearts three lessons today from this, uh, this passage and this genealogy. Now, the first thing I'd like us to, cons- to remember is, or to say to you is, believe that Jesus is the long-promised and long-awaited Messiah and Savior of the world. That's, G- that's Matthew's purpose. He says so, he gives us that information in the first chapter, and then he goes on for 27 more chapters to impress that upon us. Believe that Jesus is the long-promised and long-awaited Messiah and the Savior of the world. Receive him. Trust in him. Respond to what Matthew and the other gospel writers are so clearly seeking to show us. Repent of your sins. Admit your need. Humble yourself. Bow before this promised son of Abraham, this king, this Lord of lords. And for unbelievers, I would kindly and respectfully encourage one or one of doubtful persuasion, if not him, if not Jesus, who is the Messiah? If not him, then who? Why is it that the Bible and the Old Testament is filled with uh, predictions, prophecies, that there's one coming, that there's a great one coming who's going to make everything right. The whole uh, teaching of Scripture, the fall into sin, makes it necessary for us to have someone to come and to save us from our sins. This hope that was in the Jewish religion, was that just a, a delusionary idea that these people from that part of the world came to believe that Their God was going to send some Messiah that was not only going to save them, but save people from nations all over the world. Uh, Why repeatedly in this book that God has given us, 
Are there references to one who is coming? If not him, then who? If Jesus is not the Messiah, is there another Messiah coming? Who, who is it? Is there someone before Jesus or after Jesus who fulfilled these promises in the same way? And as we look at the New Testament, were these people who put their faith in Christ, who tell us about Christ, uh, were they just making things up? Would they believe a lie and then die for that lie? If not Jesus, then who? Believe in this Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. Be encouraged that the Jesus you do believe in is the Messiah, is the Son of God, as is so clearly taught in both the Old and the New Testament. The second thing that I'd like us to think about this morning is this. Be assured that God's timing is right. Be assured that God's timing is right. Uh, Real quickly, let me just note with you uh, verse 17 and maybe uh, respond to a question you might have. What What is Matthew's point in verse 17? So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. He he has these four points in history. Abraham, David, the time when the Israelites were taken captive to Babylon and then brought back to their land. And then when Jesus Christ came to earth. So these four points, and he points out that there's three uh, divisions of 14 generations within those. And if you look closely, it's not exactly 14. Um, But what does the 14 mean, or why does Matthew put it this way, or what's his point in this? Well, I'm not going to give you a a perfect answer at all today, and I'm not going to go into great detail, but I have looked at some commentaries. Maybe there's someone who's put something more out that's uh, more helpful, but I've looked at several commentators, and some just don't address the question. But, uh, you know, as you read it, you wonder, what, what does this mean? Uh, some just say, well, it was this Jewish fashion, fascination with numbers. So that's why it's here. And then others do give some reasons, but none of those reasons, at least what I read, were particularly convincing or helpful to me. So what can we say about this? Well, this morning I'd like to say that it seems like whatever exactly that means, Matthew is saying that the Messiah came at the right time. He came, there were the 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. We don't know what the future holds, but the Messiah came at the right time. Now, if you maybe say, well, you know, have you, I'm not sure if that's what Matthew meant. Um, I, that's okay if, if you don't agree with me there. But agree with me that whether that's exactly what Matthew's trying to say, that that's what's true. Jesus came at the right time. And where can we get that from Scripture? Well, if you're thinking, you might be thinking of Galatians 4, 4 and 5. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. So it's clear from Scripture, uh, if we didn't think so, but even in that verse, we're told that it was at the right time. It was in the fullness of time. The, in the fullness of, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. The Son of God came to earth none too soon, 
and none too late. Recognizing this fact, I'd like us to think for a few minutes about that whole concept of God's uh, right timing, particularly in the bringing of the Messiah. But let's reference that in four areas real quick. To salvation, God's time in salvation is always the right time. Uh, to providence, things that happen in our lives. To death, which we're all going to face sometime, and to God's judgment. Just think about those four areas real quickly with me. In salvation, just as Christ did his part in dying and rising in the fullness of time to bring salvation to believers, so in your personal experience, God sends his spirit into individuals' hearts in the fullness of time for the person's conversion. Isn't that true of you if you're a Christian? And it's true of you if God's going to bring you to himself in the future. You may say, I wish, I, I wish I'd had a Christian upbringing. I went a long time in my rebellious ways. And I wish I'd been raised in a Christian home. But God had his purposes. Or on the other hand, you may say, you know, I, I sometimes wish I'd almost been worse. You know, and I'd really appreciate my salvation in a greater way than some of my friends do. But God brought you to himself for his glory and for his purposes. And he did it at the right time. Think about providence. Think about the big events of history that we could call them. The wars, the times of peace, uh, the resolutions that pe where peace comes, the famines, the disasters, all these big things. I, you know, I long for peace in our world. I think you probably do too. I hate to see the destruction that's happening in different places of the world and all the sickness and so those kinds of things. But God is in control, and, and he is sovereign, and he is good, and he is merciful, and his time is right. And that's not only in the providential big events, but in the small events of our personal lives. And for us, the small events of our personal lives are not really small. They're big events to us. But in those things that happen in our lives. I was talking not too long ago with a fellow that I've known for about, well, maybe 40 years, and I was thinking, talking with him about some things that had happened a long time ago in his life where he was, as a young man, making decisions where he was going to go and what he was going to do and his relationships and things like that at that time. And, uh, you know, he's in his 50s now, and, and I asked him, you know, well, did, did it turn out okay? You know, and, and, you know, he's a Christian man, and he said, yeah, absolutely. I mean, he looks back, and he sees how God has blessed him. And that doesn't mean that there weren't really hard times in his life as there are in all our lives. God's timing is right in salvation and providence and in death. The years that were allotted on this earth. One person dies suddenly and we wonder why. Another person lives and lingers long, sometimes with terrible health problems, and we just wonder why is that person having to suffer this way. But for each one of us, the day and the hour is known, and the day will come for each one of us. May each of us be ready. May we be trusting in Christ for our salvation and not in our own righteousness. May we do 
be doing what we can with our time and ability to please our Lord and our Savior. May we live each day as if it were our last, and on the other hand, apply ourselves to the work that we have to do as if we'll be here for a long, long time. One more example, God's timing is right in judgment. Just as the Lord came the first time in the fullness of time, so Christ will come again. And that time, just as the first coming was certain and right, will be, is certain and will be the right time. But it's like our death, a day we don't know about. It could happen today, it could happen tomorrow, we do not know. May each of us be ready for that too. May, we must be like servants waiting for the return of our master, being ready for his coming back. Are you ready? Am I ready? And we must not be swayed by those who may mock and say, where's the promise of his coming? Everything seems to remain the same ever since long ago. And yet with God, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. So says Peter in 2 Peter 3. And the Lord is patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, behold, now is the day of salvation. Now is the time to call on the name of the Lord. From the time of Christ's coming to his coming again, from the time of his first coming to his coming again, there is the opportunity for every one of us to heed the call, to repent, and to put our trust in the only Savior, to enter by the narrow gate, the Lord Jesus Christ. God's timing is always right. The third and final thing I'd like us to think about today in regard to this genealogy is this. Know that God uses sinful, weak, and humble saints to accomplish his purposes. Know that God uses sinful, weak, and humble saints to accomplish his purposes. As uh, people look back at their family history Sometimes they're a little ashamed or they find something they really didn't want to find. You know, your, your grandfather was a horse thief or something like that out in Wyoming. I know that about some of you. No. Uh, actually, um, not long ago, somebody sent us a book about an ancestor in Wyoming who had gotten a bad rap and had to flee the state. And this person had written a book uh, about his ancestor uh, trying to exonerate him and say this isn't the way it was. It makes a very good case that this person was not the bad guy. He got run out of town, you might say, because uh, of the bad guys doing that. But uh, this genealogy actually has some of that uh, uh, situation in it. There's a few people who say, well, well why did they put that person in? Or why was that person in the line of Christ? And I'm sure some of you have heard some of this before, seen this before, and particularly women don't appear in genealogies, I, I don't believe, very often in this uh, kind of, in this time of literature and so forth, but there are uh, at least four or five women in here, and people have pointed out that some of them don't have great reputations, several of them are Gentiles, and you can see who some of those are. Tamar, who is the mother of Perez, is one of the women. And then uh, in verse 5, uh, there's Rahab, the woman who saved the spies, uh, the prostitute there in Jericho. And then there's Ruth, who certainly was a noble woman, but came from the Moabite tribe. 
And even uh, Bathsheba is mentioned here, although not by name, the one who gave birth uh, by David to Solomon, the wife of Uriah, it is said there. But, you know, we don't have to look just at the women to say, well, that person, uh, especially in Jewish eyes, would have been a, a person who was not maybe honored. Uh, we don't have to look just at the women. Just think of the fathers of the faith, Isaac, um, with no disrespect, Isaac, the waffling uh, one, uh, Judah, the, the fornicator, uh, David, uh, the one who uh, committed adultery, and so on, so forth. The, you know, Manasseh is in there too, the worst king of Judah, who did repent uh, eventually, but Manasseh is part of this genealogy of Jesus Christ. And then as you go on down, uh, after David, um, again, it's including Manasseh, those those uh, kings, while some of them were good, they all had their failings. And then when you get down to verse 12, we don't know uh, many of the people named after that who were taken into Babylon or uh, born in Babylon uh, and then came back uh, after the return to the promised land. We know very little about those people, but certainly a lot of them, not all of them were stellar and spot, had spotless careers. But isn't that the point? God uses sinful, weak, humble saints to accomplish his purposes. And this is part of what we should see in this. Though the Son of God was perfect, and of course, humanly speaking, he wasn't uh, from, the, the, from Joseph, but Joseph was the one who married Mary. Humanly speaking, though, Jesus, uh, the ones who were his progenitors, were not a great group of people. And yet, what does the gospel say again and again and again? What do the gospels teach us? Why did Jesus come? Matthew 9, 12 through 13. Those who are well, Jesus said, have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Matthew 11, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to children. And what about Jesus' greatest apostles? Peter denied Jesus three times. James and John, the other right-hand man of Jesus, they wanted to bring down fire upon the people who wouldn't receive Jesus at that time while he was on earth. And they wanted first place in the kingdom. And what did Paul himself say? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. So it's no surprise that Jesus saves people like you and like me. Sinners granted mercy from God through faith in God's only begotten Son. And God uses sinful and weak people like us to accomplish his purposes in the world. And that should be an encouragement to every one of us. Believe that Jesus is the long-awaited and long-promised Messiah. Put your trust in him. Rely on him. Be assured. Be assured that God's timing is right. It was in the fullness of time that Jesus came into the world. He will come again in the fullness of time. And he is in control and blessing your lives. Know that God uses someone like you and me who's sinful, who's weak, but humbly seeks to serve him and go out and do that. Yes, Jesus is the descendant of David, the promised seed of Abraham, the Christ 
whose coming was foretold by the prophets, who came at the right time. He lived, he died, he rose from the grave, so that all who call upon him in faith and repentance may be saved from their sin and sanctified in preparation for heaven. Are you among them? As Hebrews 2, 14 and 17 says, Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, God made him to be like his brothers in every respect, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Hebrews 2, 14 through 17. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your word is unified, that is glorious, that even a genealogy is magnificent that you've put this in in such a logical way, such a great way, that you've spoken through Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and the rest of the prophets and apostles. Thank you that we have this word. Lord, help us to believe it, to respond to it. Bless each one of us, if there's doubts we have, that our faith might be strengthened today. Lord, we pray that for those of us who may be going through trouble or sickness, Lord, that we'd be reminded that you're with us in that. Lord, so many of us at whatever age can look back and see how you are, have worked in our lives and you will continue to work. And we thank you for that, that you know us personally and you love us in that way. And Lord, help us to live for you day by day. Help us uh, to trust in you. Help us to serve you. Lord, we are weak. We make a mess of things. A lot of times we sin against you. We fail. But you're gracious and you're loving and you lift us up and you love us as you loved your first 12 uh, disciples. So bless us. Continue to have your hand upon this congregation, Lord. May they know your direction, Lord. May they see your blessing. May they continue to serve you well. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.